0: You just committed a very violent sexual assault against somebody, and now you're saying, I'd like to see you again? A very high level of manipulation and entitlement in this individual. Scary stuff. Very scary.
1: Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. Go law enforcement. enforcement. The podcast that makes your law enforcement dreams happen. Welcome to the Go Law Enforcement Podcast brought to you by com. I'm your host, Joe Lebowski. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, com has the largest listing of law enforcement job openings. To help you get that law enforcement job, we put together a special guide for you. Seven inside tips to get a law enforcement job fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to Jobtipsnow.com. That's Jobtipsnow.com. A student at the University of Wisconsin Madison reported a sexual assault by a fellow student involving a high level of violence and manipulation. The investigation by the City of Madison Police Department created a snowball effect with many women coming forward who were victims of the suspect. In this episode of the Go Law Enforcement Podcast, I talk with City of Madison Police Department Detective Tracy Jokala about this case, which she described as the level on which he was assaulting and serially assaulting she had not seen in her career before. Detective Jokala, thank you for being on the Go! Law Enforcement Podcast.
0: Of course, you're welcome.
1: So what's your current job title?
0: I'm a detective of police for the city of Madison Police Department in Madison, the capital of Wisconsin.
1: And how did you get into law enforcement?
0: Well, like many in this field, I felt it, always felt a calling to serve. I think if you ask a lot of cops out there, a lot of police types, they just always, as they were growing older, kind of felt a calling to serve. So um, I grew up with uh, a grandfather who was a Milwaukee police officer, so I was around police officers a lot while I was growing up. I was always fascinated and always kind of drawn to that field. Um, I kind of went in a roundabout way to get into this profession. I always knew I wanted to be a police officer, but I wanted to do a lot of other things with my life, too. I think, you know, when you're young, you have a lot of different ideas on what you want to do in life, but I also knew that the strongest calling was to law enforcement. So... I went to college, I went to five, probably five different colleges over the years, and then after that, at 22 years old, um, I still wanted to kind of see the world, so I joined the United States Army, and I was active duty for four years, and when I was 26, I applied for Madison Police Department and was hired, and then I eventually earned my bachelor's degree while serving as a police officer. So I did a lot of different things in my 20s, and that landed me here.
1: Can you describe the City of Madison and the University of Wisconsin at Madison?
0: Well, I work for the City of Madison Police Department, obviously, and there's numerous departments around this area, and including the UW-Madison Police Department. City of Madison is about, take or give about 300,000 uh, residents. But during the school year, um, UW-Madison, which is the largest university in, in the uh, UW system, Um, That can expand our population by 50,000 easily. Um, And people come from all over. It's a very diverse university. It's a very diverse city. It's pretty progressive, and it's a liberal city, uh, generally speaking. So there's just a lot going on here. The university presents its own unique set of challenges and obstacles when it comes to crimes. Um, a lot of students are here, and they're focused mostly on their studies, so they're not particularly paying the attention, maybe, to locking their doors. So we do have uh, a lot of people going in and out of residences. So that, I mean, just having a student population in and of itself creates a whole new set of problems. And then you have the um, the large amount of sexual assaults that are associated with campus atmospheres, the bulk of which go unreported, unfortunately. But you still have that. So a lot of sexual assault investigations in Madison revolve around students so the the university is huge it's the biggest university like I said in in the state and it's it's a great city but again you know as a cop uh, you see Madison through a different lens so
1: so in your role as detective what types of cases do you work
0: for the last 10 years I would estimate that probably about Seventy-five percent of my work has revolved around sexual assault investigations or sensitive crimes investigations. Currently, I'm in the burglary unit. I chose to uh, go to the burglary unit this year just to um, get a different taste of a different type of investigation, and I've been having a great time doing that. Um, I'm finding it very rewarding to, um, especially track down serial burglars who are just consistently committing um, crimes around the city. So.
1: There's one particular sexual assault case. How did that come to light?
0: Typically on Monday mornings, uh, I would get handed cases from over the weekend, um, the first detective in on a Monday morning. And if it involved a sexual assault investigation, it was likely coming to me, um, or it, you know, if it could hold off for a little bit, it could go to the second shift detective. So I recalled uh, walking into the briefing room and fielding a case um, involving a student from the UW.
1: How unusual is it to have sexual assault reports?
0: Not unusual at all. Many of my cases that are assigned to me are, are going to be, because I'm a central detective, um, m- many of the cases are going to involve um, sexual assaults of students or people in their, in their 20s.
1: Was there something that uh, stood out about this particular case?
0: Uh, this case stood out to me because of the dynamics. The fact that they were acquaintances was not unusual. The fact that there appeared to be no alcohol or controlled substances involved. And what stood out to me was the what was surfacing in the case was the level of manipulation that was going on. I felt that this assault also was violent to the point of this is somebody who this is not his first
1: time. Can you describe the incident as it was referred to in the report?
0: Yes, I can go into some detail. Um, this this particular victim had gone, after the assault, had gone to report it and was urged, gone to the hospital, and ultimately, at the urging of a roommate, reported it to the police department. And this was, I believe, the day a day or two after it occurred. In fact, I think it was the afternoon right after that, um, right after. She described... Basically, running into this suspect, probably about four or five days before the assault, I believe, um she was riding her bike on the bike path near campus, and this suspect eventually um, who came to be Alec Cook, had run literally almost run into her on the bike path, and they struck up a conversation from there, they started talking and Chatting back and forth, and also doing um, some communication through Facebook. From there, uh, it, for this victim, for this victim in particular, um, she described it as their likenesses being uncanny, almost, almost to the point he 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 knew a lot about her or had these similarities with her, like the same likes, the same um, interests, and immediately she was smitten. So this was somebody who's very charismatic, charming, seemed to say all the right things, and they hit it off. And from there, she had been working at a particular restaurant uh, in the State Street area, which is a very, uh, it's like a pedestrian mall um, that, that is uh, very, very popular for, for downtown and for students to walk and shop and eat. And... Alec had come to her workplace, and for her, it was a coincidence. I believe that it was completely planned for him to run into her there and that he had um, dug this up on Facebook and knew that she worked at this particular restaurant and decided to go there. Eventually, she got off of her shift, and they had a meal together and went on a stroll Um, during the stroll. Uh, This victim, again, described him as charming, really laying on the charm. And looking back, she saw, after the assault, saw that there were some red flags that she kind of ignored because he just seemed so perfect to her. And this included doing things like tickling her to the point that she was on the ground and she kept telling him to stop and he wouldn't. But she, again, she said she dismissed this because, Uh, She thought that just he's just this guy is so great. Eventually, they made their way to his apartment, and um, she told him, "You know, I'm really basically that he's that I really like you, and I I don't want to come up if it's going if you think it's going to lead to something. You know, I'm not that's not what I'm into. I want to take this slow. This particular woman." was a very kind-hearted, or is I should say is a very kind-hearted, trusting person um, who was really, truly interested in starting a relationship with him. And Alec, almost, I mean, basically offended, said, oh my goodness, I mean, how could you ever, no, absolutely not, you know, pretty much displayed some of, you know, being offended about her that she would even think that he would even go there or, you know, um, try to try something on her. So she bit, unfortunately, and she described about going up to the apartment and how he changed. Uh, he changed into somebody who ended up assaulting her. Basically, in the first five minutes of being up in the, the apartment, there was some kissing. She was not even interested in going, even doing that. She, she wanted to get to know him better. Her point in going up was to to do that and not to get romantically involved, but he insisted that she sit on the bed and he engaged in some kissing with her, which she was okay with. However, it quickly turned to very forceful kissing to the point where my victim described it as "quote eating my face." She couldn't get a breath. He would like would mouth and would kiss over her. Um, over her saying no, and that eventually progressed into a full assault that lasted several hours. Uh, She was not allowed to leave, or she did not feel as though she was safe to leave um, based on the way he was holding her down and constantly had a hand on her or had her by a grip. Her phone was not near her. She had mentioned wanting to to phone somebody or let somebody know where she was because this wasn't her thing, and she had a roommate that was back in at the dorm, and he casually told her, "You can do that later." and uh, the assault was so violent that she was strangled, her hair was ripped from her head, and this lasted for hours. so eventually, when she was able to get out and she had to do so very gently and just by easing her way away from the situation eventually to the point where he did not block her from leaving um, she left and she left uh, the building it was very early in the morning and she went went back to her dorm and she ended up reporting later that day to the officer who took the case and eventually the case report landed on my desk Monday
1: so when you had gotten the report was uh Alla Cook identified in that report?
0: Yes. The victim was able to this first victim who came forward was able to um up they were clearly on Facebook, so she provided pictures to the officer and so we had um had his identity. We know we knew who he was. We knew he was a student, he was in the student roster, so he he was known. And Actually, the officer um, and a sergeant went to locate him, and they were able to locate him over the weekend after the case was reported um, and go contact him in the library.
1: What did he say in response to the allegations?
0: Cook was dismissive. Uh, He uh, was very vague in his answers to the officer, admitted he was, with the victim, however, couldn't remember if he strangled her, things of that nature that are clearly red flags and because you'll remember if you strangle somebody or not, you're either going to give a yes or no answer. That's not something you just don't really remember. And he shut that conversation down very quick. In fact, he told the officer, yeah, I'm busy now. Can you go away? Uh, he refused to provide a DNA sample. He refused to go with the officer to do a, a, a kit or a, or a strip search for any biological evidence on him. And, uh, and that was the end of that contact. So when I got the case Monday morning, um, I was aware of this. I was aware of the contact with Cook and based on my training and experience at the time. And again, patrol officers and, you know, those out there conducting these investigations on the streets, based on what they have they may not reach or feel that they've reached a level of an arrest based on what i had in front of me and i'm able to kind of sit there and look at it all in one fell swoop and uh you know in 10 years of doing this i can see this guy needs to be in custody now
1: so you felt like you had enough to make the arrest what happened next
0: well i focused more on the victim. I asked some coworkers to assist me some other detectives uh, central to assist me in locating uh, Alec and taking him into custody at this point I, I felt that we need to move forward with this ASap um, I was also very concerned about with the violence involved in this case and the level of manipulation I felt that there were likely other victims out there
1: so he's been taken into custody you obviously have your victim what transpired in the case next?
0: I went and contacted the victim. I filled in some of the blanks that I wanted to fill in um, as far as what her statement was, just nailing down some different facts, clarifying some things from the original interview of her. And uh, I was notified by my coworker worker that uh, Alec was located and he had an obtained an attorney at this point. And, of course, I wanted to get an, a statement from him. And uh, he did end up agreeing to making a statement about what occurred.
1: What was his version of the events in, in the statement that he gave?
0: So the detective who uh, met with he and, him and his attorney uh, met at the attorney's office. And uh, initially, I was surprised that he wanted to make a statement because nothing good can come from that. But in a lot of sexual assault cases, it boils down to consent. And this this case was, you know, there's there there were red flags about it. You know, the level of violence involved, the, the fact that hair was torn out. I mean, these are these are things that point, that kind of, in and of themselves, many times point to non-consent. So, in, in essence, Ella Cook had a lot of explaining to do. So. Well, I was kind of taken aback that he was willing to provide a statement. In totality, I I guess I'm not so surprised because there's a lot of things that he had to explain away. And so he sat down with my coworker and provided a recorded statement that was probably about, I want to say, two hours long. And he had a lot more details than he had when he was contacted by patrol, of course. And this was an entirely consensual situation. This was... Um, By his statement, this was a a victim who completely consented to all these things that basically are rough sex. And that's where he stood with that. Uh, That said, there were very interesting things that were peppered throughout his statement, times that he would pause or he'd start to say something and he'd correct himself. So there were some things that helped us from that interview, but there are also things that he was trying to explain away that, you know, left in the hands of a jury, you know, it's, it's 12 people that are, that have to decide whether that holds water or not, you know, who's more reliable, who's more credible, um, Mr. Cook or, or his victim.
1: So did word get out as far as about Al Cook being arrested?
0: Yes, it did. And we have a policy here with the Madison Police Department that we do press releases on many different cases, notably when they are of interest to the public or they need to, or the arrest or the case revolves around something that the public needs to know because they need to keep themselves safe and we need to keep the public safe. With respect to Alec, when I got the case, read it, ended up in the coming days, Um, Getting him arrested and delving into it, I was certain there were more victims out there. And I know from doing this job for a long time that victims are so reluctant to come forward for a multitude of reasons. And so at the time this was unfolding and Alec was arrested, I went to our public information officer and I said, we need to get a, a public release on this arrest. Um, because I'm sure there's more victims out there. And that's what he did.
1: So once the information was put out there, did somebody else come forward?
0: Many people came forward. So it started a snowball effect that I couldn't even keep up with because there's so many ways victims may surface. It's not all about just calling 911 and saying, I want to report an assault. This was a huge social media frenzy. It's a campus of 30, 40,000 people. What we came to learn in the coming days and weeks was that Alec Cook was notorious on campus. And I'm not going to say 40,000 people knew who he was, but there were many, many people that knew who he was, that he was that creepy guy and who would follow people and harass women And, uh, people started talking about him on social media. This is that guy that was following me. This is that guy that was in my class and that was taking pictures of me. This is that guy that grabbed me in in the hallway. It was like, Squared. That's all I can describe. How I can describe it? Like it was like people reporting squared because it just kept on going and going down these wormholes of people talking about it. You click on one person, they'd be talking. They shared it with these people, and then all of a sudden, this person's like, "Yes, that guy." And that's not even counting the people who started stepping forward about assaults. And you know, I fielded a call from somebody, and I would field lots of calls from people like. You know, it wasn't until you got into the bread and butter of the conversation where you didn't know until you knew that, okay, this person is just telling me this guy creeped him out and there's no crime, to a full blown, like, I want to come in and they start crying and they want to talk to you about this assault that happened a year ago. And this is the guy. And I just never had the courage to step forward and, and say it. And so it was really overwhelming. I mean, I had spreadsheets going. I had case numbers I was pulling, because every single one is a different case number. It's an immense amount of work. Um, and it's basically, you know, you have the help of a couple of detectives early on, but then they kind of fade away and it's pretty much your baby. You're working it. It was a long, hard investigation and a lot of different names. And you're just talking about, I mean, we may have so many victims, but then there's witnesses, contacts, you know, people who want to give information. So it's, I can't even describe how overwhelming a case like that is when, when somebody, you, you start revealing that somebody's responsible for so many incidents.
1: In reading through some of the paperwork, it, it struck me just the variety of different ways that he encountered these women. Can you talk about some of the different ways that he ended up meeting these women?
0: Sure, mostly it was in social, public areas, library. Uh, college library was a, was a good place for him. The, the Memorial Union and also the college union, he would hang out there. Um, he would show up randomly to parties, um, that he was not invited to. He was very overbearing to people. He was very intense and it, people described him as when he walked in the room, he owned it. Later on in the case, well, towards the end, he was openly spoken about, um, in court by, um, a therapist who essentially diagnosed him as narcissistic and a sadist. And, you know, if you know anything about a narcissist, you know that they demand attention. They, they're, boisterous, they're, they're they boisterous. They they're need to be the, the center of things. Um, he was not shy about this, not shy at all. And It was very off-putting. He was very off-putting to people. And so he, he seemed like he was everywhere. That's what some people would say. He also had stalking tendencies. He was eventually convicted of a stalking, and he would show up, and people just would describe him as like, "I turned around and he was there, and then I was over here three days later, and he was staring at me from across the street." And so, you know, it was he was everywhere. It, It was everywhere was a ground. It was was a playground for him. It was a game, you know. Anywhere he could get. He could find a a woman to target. He'd be there. So.
1: Now, my understanding is there were ultimately 15 counts, many of which were sexual assault involving five different women. Were there similarities between what had occurred with these different women?
0: Yes, and eventually there actually yes, there were. I I think that was the amount of sexual assaults, but there were a lot more. There were lower level sexual assaults, and there were stalkings and strangulation. Alec had a whole mo. He had a whole modus operandi. He was very, uh, he was brilliant, as described by an ex-roommate. He was a brilliant individual. Um, he was a study of manipulation. You know, we were in his apartment. We saw what he likes to read, uh, and he enjoyed reading about power, how to win, and he was relentless in it. So when he would target a woman. Um, he would often be very bold and brash and he would be very upfront. Um, and young women are very, he would target the right ones. The ones that are very nice, not going to say no, you know, give me your phone number. I think you're cute. He had the same lines over and over again. Um, I like your vibe, things of that nature, big, bright smile, you know, wouldn't take his eyes off of somebody to the point it was uncomfortable for many and they would be cornered, like pretty much emotionally cornered into kind of coughing up their number. Or he would grab their phone and just put his number in and then text himself from their phone, and so he had their number. He was very, very forward to the point. Almost everybody we talked to, witnesses, men that knew him, um, that he was, he was just an overbearing person and different and narcissistic. He would do this with women, and he would constantly text them talk to them. If he targeted them for a sexual assault, he would, um, again, try to get them into his apartment. And one of the most intriguing and, I think, telling characteristics he used or maneuvers he used was gaslighting. And if you're familiar with gaslighting, gaslighting refers to, it's kind of a buzzword now, but gaslighting refers to, it's a very old movie from the 1940s with Ingrid Bergman. And her husband psychologically manipulates her into thinking she's insane by turning down the gaslight or turning down the light in the house. And when he would turn down the light, she would call him out and say, this light's dimmer. And he'd say, what are you talking about? And he would pretend like nothing was wrong. When truly he was doing these things to manipulate and he was doing things to her, but he was making her feel like she was she was off, she was insane, she was wrong, she's she must be crazy. So gaslighting is a, a common term these days for manipulating somebody in that way in that fashion where they basically are like, What are you talking about? You know, I didn't I didn't do that. I mean so one of his MOs was Victims, and this happened to pretty much every victim, was that after he would conduct this assault, he would get up and he would go to his kitchen and he would cook some eggs. He'd pour a glass of milk and down a glass of milk, go to the bathroom, go, you know, come out and say something along the lines of, I'd like to see you again. When can we date? When can we go out again? And that is gaslighting. That is making somebody think, like, question their sanity. And with my first victim, the one who ended up leaving the apartment and reporting that following day, again, there were texts back and forth between them. And, you know, I'd like to see you again. Really? You know, somebody like me who I'm investigating this and I can, you know, it, it's like you just committed a very violent sexual assault against somebody and now you're saying, I'd like to see you again. So a very high level of manipulation and entitlement in this individual. Scary stuff. Very scary.
1: Did the case end up going to trial?
0: It did not. So we had a trial scheduled, of course. Judges will schedule trials um, well in advance just in case they do go. But of course, there's always negotiations going on. And in this case, he was charged with a lot. And I think when it really was tallied, it was in, it, it was up there. It was I want to say over 20 different felonies involved in this case. And there were never serious talks about a plea. I think we were so far apart with what we wanted versus what they were willing to settle for. Uh, We never thought we were going to meet in the middle. And a few weeks out from trial, um, suddenly uh, their side said they were going to accept uh, our terms, and ours meaning the, the prosecutor's terms. And that involved uh, several counts of sexual assault and a strangulation and a stalking. It did end up in a plea agreement.
1: Has Alec Cook been sentenced?
0: Yes, he was sentenced several months ago um, back in June and uh, received some prison time, some extended supervision time, some uh, probation, and then 15-year mandatory sex offender registry.
1: You've worked a lot of sexual assault cases. How unusual is it to have a defendant like Alec Cook?
0: Very rare. You know, um, the level on which he was assaulting and serially assaulting, I have not seen in my career yet. You know, there may be others out there like him. I'm sure there are. You know, maybe they're taking a page from, from him and, you know, on how not to get revealed, you know, but he was so brazen and manipulative and he he is he is an interesting was an very or is an interesting individual, an offender. He's scary.
1: You've had quite an extensive history working in law enforcement. You've done a variety of different casework. What advice would you have for somebody who's either thinking about going into law enforcement or is planning on it?
0: I took a, a very windy road to get get here. And I, I have a lot of experience in different areas and, you know, have taken a lot of different courses and different topics and, was a mil- and I'm a military veteran. And there's no perfect cookie cutter way to get to this profession. Um, I would say that if you're interested in this profession, you need to be interested in people. You need to have a desire to solve problems, solve things. You're going to deal a lot with people. You know I think there's this concept this this misconception out there that it's all about driving around in a car fast and pulling out your gun and you know ar- putting handcuffs on somebody and it's I, I couldn't be further from the truth you know anybody can be taught how to drive a car fast pretty much anybody can be taught how to shoot a gun accurately anyone can be taught how to throw somebody on the ground and put them in handcuffs, but what you can't be taught is integrity, character, that drive to learn, solve problems, solve cases. I mean, this is going to be, it's a long career. I started older. I was 26 when I started, you know, and doing this for 17 years, it it can wear on you. You have to have a thick skin. Um, You are going to be called every name in the book. It takes a very well-rounded character to do this work. So, In that theme, you should really try to attain a well-roundedness when it comes to your education, volunteer work, learning about people, shadowing and learning about this job before you dive into it. You will find that people get into this line of work and they realize it's not what they expected. So don't make that mistake and learn as much as you can. Some of the degrees you even want to pursue um, involve people, sociology. You know, there's a lot of cops in Madison who have backgrounds in social work. Um, They have been teachers before. You know, they've, they've worked with the public. They've worked in the public atmosphere. And so doing this kind of work is not a stretch. You have to fill a lot of shoes as a patrol officer. You're going to be a counselor. You're going to be a psychologist. You know, you're going to be the authoritarian who takes somebody to jail and they won't listen to you. You have to wear a lot of shoes and, and fill a lot of shoes, a lot of roles, because that's what society expects of us. Because you are going to have to show up on a call and, sh- and solve somebody's 20-year problem in 20 minutes, because that's what they're going to expect of you. So it's not for everyone, and but it's very rewarding. It can be very taxing, but I can sit here now and I can say, because of some of my hard work on certain cases, certain people in the future will not be victimized. You know, like one of the prosecutors on our Ella Cook case said, um, there's a whole new, there's now two sets, incoming freshmen and, sophomore, and the sophomores this year, who have not had to be on a campus with Ella Cook and laying in wait to victimize people. Thousands of women who can now go about campus and live their lives and never have to run into that guy because a lot of people did hard work to get him held accountable and get him convicted.
1: Detective Jokala, thank you for being on the Go Law Enforcement podcast. Thank you. If you're looking for a job in law enforcement, check out the largest listing of law enforcement jobs on golawenforcement.com. To help you get that law enforcement job, we put together a special guide for you. Seven Inside Tips to Get a Law Enforcement Job Fast. You can get the guide for free just by going to JobTipsNow.com. That's JobTipsNow.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.